0: the Revision Path podcast, a showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. I'm Maurice Cherry, and I want to wish you a happy new year. It's 2014, and we're kicking off the first in our series of design journeys interviews. Now, these are inspired by our interview in December 2013 with Andrew Bass, the former chair of the first diversity task force of AIGA. This week, I spoke with Steve Jones, graphic designer and professor at San Francisco State University. Here we go.
1: Okay, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Steve Jones. I'm a graphic designer and I'm also a professor. I teach typography and I also coordinate the graduate program at San Francisco State University. And I'm the principal and creative director of Plantin Studio in Oakland, California.
0: Nice, nice. I'm a big typography buff, so we can we can sort of go into that uh, a bit later. So. You say you also have a, a studio called Plantin Studios. Is that kind of a nod to your Jamaican heritage? Uh,
1: definitely. Um, when we started the studio, I originally had a business partner who a good friend from school. We started in 99, and there were a lot of studios. Plantin came from... Studios like Celery, there was pomegranate, there was tomato, (laughs) fruit, vegetable sounding studio. It's a farmer's
0: market of creativity.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And my uh, partner is Puerto Rican, Mexican, and I've got Jamaican roots. And so, you know, we thought, you know, I eat plantains all the time. He eats plantains. And we actually thought there was something nice about that third world kind of construct um, behind a plantain. So. Yeah, that that's where the name came from. Nice. I also, like the idea of planting being a staple of the diet as well, and this idea of produce and to produce work also kind of tied into it.
0: I like that. That's a good uh, that's a good way to put it. So, when you, you you're currently, like you said, at San Francisco
1: State, um, how
0: did you how did you start there? What was how did your beginning?
1: Well, you know, I started teaching actually in grad school. Um, I never sought out being a teacher, but I started off as a uh, teaching assistant.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I actually found out that I really enjoyed teaching. Um, and that led to me proposing a class on my own, which they actually let me teach a class my last semester. And once I moved back to California, uh, I went to grad school in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, I was out and I guess a friend of a friend knew about some of the work I had done teaching my thesis at San Francisco State. He kind of called me up and asked if I was interested in, in teaching here. So I um, said, sure, why not? And that was back in 2000.
0: Oh, nice. So you're a nice
1: tenured professor. Well, you know, I, I was a lecturer at first. So for eight years, I was a lecturer. And that same person who brought me in in 2000 actually finally convinced me to apply for a full time uh-huh. tenured position. And that was in 08. So I actually go up for tenure this year. So I'm in the process of that right now. Nice. Um, But I thought it was a different change of pace. Um, I'm still doing a studio, not in the same capacity as I was before because my time is a little bit more divided. But after 10 years doing it, um, there are some benefits, I think, that come with being, you know, a a professor versus a lecturer. And I'm trying to explain those as best as I can as well. Mm Now, you're,
0: you're out there in Oakland. Are you familiar with Maurice Woods? Does that name sound familiar? Oh, yeah. Maurice
1: is a very good friend of mine.
0: Okay. I interviewed uh, Maurice. He'll be on the site uh, in a little bit. I interviewed him as well, talking about kind of the uh, the Interact project. Yep. Nice. So you were out in, in Rhode Island, so you went to Rhode Island School of Design, so you said it's in, in Providence, right? Right. Now, before that, you had a pretty, and for the listeners, I think our listeners are probably within the, I guess, the nine, the 90s baby, 80s baby sort of range. Uh, you had a pretty interesting sort of graphic design profession when you were in D.C. Can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. After my undergraduate um, education, I went to California College of the Arts. I ended up in D.C. And I worked for BET. I'm sure most of the folks know BET, but BET at that time actually had magazines and they had two demographics. There was an older demographic and they had a magazine called Emerge, which Mm -hmm. was essentially a a Newsweek or Time magazine for African-Americans. And then there was YSB, Young Sisters and Brothers, which was geared towards um, an African-American young adult. And that's where I ended up working. And um, they had hired a new art director. And so there's a lot of serendipity, you know, that just happened with my time being there, this new art director, me applying, and him coming across my resume. And I was there for three years, and um, it was probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. I still keep up with a lot of those guys, and uh, the foundation, a lot of things i picked up from that job still, you know, help me to this day. Uh, But the magazine folded in about 96, Uh I believe. Emerge NYSB folded in 96. And it was just also pretty fortuitous that I was making plans for grad school. So I'd already been accepted into grad school. Um, I got in and the magazine probably closed just a few months after I left DC for grad school.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I guess I got pretty lucky to kind of have the next step already. Um, planned out for me.
0: YSB was one of the two magazines that my mother let me get when I was in <laughs> let me get in uh, in middle school. It was YSB and Zillions, which was this magazine that uh, Consumer Reports put out. Uh, it was like a teen version of, of Consumer Reports. I remember I have a, a very vivid uh, recollection of YSB. So to know that you were connected with that, that's like it's a piece of my childhood. So that's that's awesome.
1: Well, if you've got old, old issues, that'd be <laughs> I might have a few copies sitting around someplace. I, have, I never really kept all, every uh, issue. I, I might be able to dig up a few though.
0: let's uh, let's go back um, a little further. So I know you're also a big uh, comic book fan. Sure. Was that sort of your introduction into
1: design as a kid? Uh, you, you know, honestly, I never knew what graphic design was until I got to college, even though I was doing it, even in high school. But I think my story with comic books is maybe not too unfamiliar. Almost everybody I knew in art school were connected to comics in, in some way or another. But I really got into comic books really big, mostly around middle school. Then it became like a like a hobby. Up until that point, you know, you kids read comic books and you kind of throw them away. But I would say from maybe sixth, seventh grade through... Easily 10th grade in high school. It was a good five years that I was really big into comics. I mean, I still have over a 1,000 in the garage. Um, wow. But in terms of making a connection to that in graphic design, I didn't, I didn't make such a conscious um, connection. I do know I like drawing. I love art. I love comic books. I love, you know, I followed illustrators. You know, that's how I bought comics. I would actually follow. It was less about the superheroes, but people like a John Byrne or a Walt Simonson, um, Paul Smith. I mean, you know, these are the guys that you actually, George Perez was another big fan of mine. And so I knew at, at least at that age, the, the, the illustrator, the guys who actually drew the comics, that's a person I was actually a fan of.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but it wasn't until college where I actually knew there was a word called graphic design, and it perfectly fit into everything that I loved doing, you know, type, um, books, posters, logos, drawing, photography. So, but I, I didn't make such a connection at the time when and, I was collecting comics.
0: And then from there, you went to CCA, which from what I've what I researched and found, it was probably,
1: I don't think you had, I think the best time there starting off, did you? Well, you know, art school is a funny place. Same with my graduate experience. I think most students of color probably, again, have similar. Um, it's a paradox, right? On one level, you go to these really great schools and you're learning a lot. You know, I I don't think I can discount the education I got from my graduate and undergraduate education in terms of design. Mm -hmm. But then there's that other um, part of the puzzle, right, which is being sent the only student of color in the program. I think when I was at CCA, there might have been two, maybe three. I think there were two other women in the program. Um, You know, so there's that level of invisibility or not having to kind of um, support, you know, faculty wise and so on or a system that's really not geared towards students of color. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's always been a challenge. And I, again, I don't think that story is unique to me. Uh, I've heard that story with a lot of other students. Um, so that was always a challenge because and actually that's what led me to graduate school because one of the problems I had leaving CCA, one of the first jobs I had was, I should say a real job, my first real job, a friend of mine um, hosted a a night at a a, a nightclub, a lounge in in Oakland and it was, you know, African-American audience. And he wanted me to design, you know, a logo for this, for this event. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm just out of school. I've got all this training. I know everything about type, you know, let's put this to good use. And so I ended up doing this logo and it got a really cool response. And essentially, you know, just to cut to the chase, it did not speak to African-Americans. And at that point, I kind of had to reassess a lot of my education because I didn't do work, which I knew I did work, which I thought I should be doing. This is what I was taught in school. And so this whole idea of a black aesthetic really became something that drove, um, design for me. Mm -hmm. How do I try and find a balance between my kind of school education and the design that speaks to people who look like me and myself? Um, and yeah in grad school my, my my thesis was on black icons and their representation in printed mass media so it did you know evolve from this idea of what is exactly a black aesthetic and how black representation is manifested in printed mass media
0: and this was sort of right around in the early 90s is that right when when this was going on
1: yep i graduated in 92.
0: yeah i feel like the the 90s kind of in general and i'm probably just speaking of this partly from nostalgia feels like when you talk about sort of the black aesthetic it that feels like such a a culturally rich time in terms of music and movies right. and and magazines and books like there was like this rich valley of of material that could sort of fall within that black aesthetic
1: well see that was a challenge because it was really easy to find a black aesthetic in music and art design it was less it was more it was difficult, I think, more difficult in graphic design uh-huh. because what I was looking for, and again, my background, you know, my parents are Jamaican and, you know, I lived in Jamaica growing up for a few years. But what I love about, let's say, reggae, right, there's a reggae version for essentially every pop song. Mm-hmm. And it was something I found really nice that there's a filter. You can take a song, filter it through reggae, and it comes out essentially the reggae version. And so I was wondering, is there such a thing that makes something black? You know, do I oh. what? What essentially finds a black aesthetic? Is it a typeface? And then what I started to find out, which I think working at YSB, and I think you reading that as a kid, what I loved about that experience was it was a black-owned publication with black designers, but it didn't fit the the stereotype of what black design should be because that's the the road I kept kind of finding myself on. It had to have you know canty cloth. It had to have lithos type. You know. Oh. They, they, they <laughs> And I thought it had, you know, it has to be a lot more than that. Right. And so I found it a lot more difficult, you know, when it comes to hip hop music, you know, I think that aesthetic is a lot easier to define. When you when you hear hip hop or rap music, you know right away that's not punk music, it's not opera. Right. Uh, certain things that find it, I think, a lot stronger than say graphic design. Um. And so I don't think I found the answer to it quite yet, but I, I think I'm close. Uh. And I'm not sure if there is such a thing that makes something authentically black, a, a pure typeface. Um, because, again, as one of the things I teach my students that the challenge with coming up with a certain kind of vernacular is that you can also be a victim of that vernacular. Right. So if right. there's only a typeface or a look or a color or a particular um, art direction that says black, then people expect for you like that's all it is. Mm-hmm. And I find that that's not I don't want to go down that road either. Um mm-hmm. So it's it's a difficult question, um, and I, I've I've spoken to a lot of folks about it, but it's something that still is an interest of mine.
0: So as a as a professor and a sort a working professional in this field, do you think that, like you said in the 90s, that in terms of design there was not uh, if there weren't that many black people, do you think that's
1: that's changed? Has it gotten worse now, some 20 something years later? Yeah, you know I don't think it's. Changed much. I mean, I can just base it on my experience. Um, you know, CCA, it's been 20 years since I've left that s- school. And I, if I even say there's five students in a design program
2: uh-huh.
1: now, um, as far as I know, they haven't had any black design instructors. Um, I'm not sure how RISD is doing, if it's doing much better. Um, but, you know, I think there's two ways of looking at it. When I was in grad school, I had two interesting bits of advice from some some mentors of mine. One mentor essentially felt the way we solve this problem is just we just need more black designers. You know, you get more black designers, put them out there, and then we start to control our own aesthetic, our own kind of um, graphic language. And I kind of had a problem with that because at best we're maybe about 1%. I'd say, mm-hmm. of the design profession, mm-hmm. that that's going to take a lot of years before we even get to close to a tipping point. Right. And I actually believe the other advice I got, which was you need to set an example and educate essentially non-black designers how to represent you correctly.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, because I know, honestly, if it was just up to black designers, we're not going to have much of an impact. You know, the people who control our images, for the most part, are not black, right? Right. And so... I think that's probably a more realistic this idea of educating the other on how to you know define us in a proper way. Um, and I actually that's been as an educator, I think it's kind of been my role. You know, I get students. I would say 95% of my students are not black. Uh-huh. This semester, I only have one African American student. So. It can't be that I'm just going to teach him, and that's it. I essentially have to be, you know, educate all these students that when they come across anybody of color right. or who's that, who doesn't look like them, that they have the tools to be able to tell that story in a very, um, you know, in an honest way, and not one that's stereotypical.
0: It's so funny that you mentioned that about sort of educating the other. Uh, I know when, and I still get this now from Revision Path, is that when I mention it to Non-black people, the first thing out of the first thing that they say is, "Oh, don't you think that's racist? Isn't that Mm. segregationist? Why are we, you know, why are you only wanting to talk to black designers? Why don't you want to talk to white designers or Asian designers?" And um, it's 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 an interesting thing because we're not. Part of the mainstream in terms of a representation. Whenever there is something that sort of pops up that says, "This is, you know, here we are. This is what we're doing." It's like, "Oh, this is racist." Like I feel like
1: that's a lazy cop out. Well, know. that's that's a t- t- typical cop out. What I would say, what I would advise you is. Be what, you know, do what everybody else does. I've always said, you know, at least you're honest. You know, when people have a comment like, you know, Blacks in graphic design and history, I'm just kind of making up a title. You know, the comment would be, well, why do you need your own graphic design history book? Because technically the book that says a history of graphic design does not include me. Right. right. But at least this book is honest. So, you know, you could technically say, you know, I'm Maurice and I have a podcast and I just talk to designers. The fact that they're all Black is really... You know, you can argue. Oh, well, wow, I was not paying attention to that, but there are certain outlets which will say, you know, we're the history of, or we speak to graphic designers, and I've never seen someone who looked like me on them.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and that could probably solve your problem. I think the the critique you're having is because you're honest. The fact that you're actually saying it, what it is. Now, the other doesn't have to. It's it's already understood that if you're right. the history, the history is it's it's a white Anglo history, right? right. Or If it's a podcast on graphic design, for the most part, it's going to be designers who are not of color. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, they probably would get in trouble if they say, you know, we only talk to white designers. But by default, that's essentially what they do. Yeah. Um, And so and it's not I don't think it's exclusive to blacks. You'll find the same thing with either Asian American or um, Latin American. There is a distinction. Um, But I think it's that's the critique you're getting is whenever those groups. Define it and they're truthful about it.
0: Mm-hmm. So as an educator that teaches design, um, when you have your students in your class, what are some things, I guess, if you were to talk to any future students like high school or maybe stu- people that are thinking about coming to design school, uh, what sort of skills do you think they need to have when they decide to approach this profession? Aside from, I guess, you know, creativity.
1: Mm, well, You know, I was almost anticipating the answer because, you know, honestly, I think it's it's less about skills. You can pick up skills. You know, I think um, there are some fundamentals to design and there's some transferable things. I think a lot of the skills, which I if I get you right, you know, you could honestly learn that in a book. You can watch it on YouTube mm-hmm. if it's just about a program. My question or my um, advice would be, I think you know, you got to have a level of passion. You know, I, I advise a lot of students who haven't declared the major. And it's amazing how few of them actually know about graphic design. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes put myself in in the role. If I was a grandpa paying for your college education and I know nothing about graphic design, explain this thing. Why am I writing you a check? Mm-hmm. And you'd be amazed. Very few of them can actually explain whats what it is graphic design is. And I think back to when I was saying high school, I mean even without knowing that there was a word for graphic design, I knew where I wanted to go to school. I mean, I loved art. You know, I was drawing, I got it. These are the things, my circle of friends, these are the things that interested us, you know, graffiti, typographies. And I just couldn't wait to get to art school. You know, if anyone asked me that question, I could talk about it for hours. So I think a level of passion would be the main thing. Uh Um, You know, again, now that I'm a teacher, I do know, I would say the majority of my students probably will not end up working as, you know, professional designers. You know, there's that maybe a third that are really passionate about it. And I know once they leave school, that's what they're going to end up doing. But for the most part, a lot of students, it's just a degree. Mm -hmm. And if it works out for them, that's fine. But they'll probably be just as happy working somewhere else. And I never had that option, I don't think, coming out of school. I mean, I loved it. Um, But for the technical skills, yeah, there was a time where... Um, I used to, I mean, I still am not a big fan of the computer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually just see it as a tool. I think it's becoming harder and harder, though, for students to not just see it as a tool. Um, I also teach a summer program, and I think this past summer was the first time I was showing them some posters of a nice history lesson, and the students literally did not know that you can put a poster together without a computer. I mean, I'm showing them work from 50 years ago, 60 years ago. And this was uh-huh. a question out of their mouth. I mean, they really wanted that. They asked me, how did they do that? Wow. Because there's a generation now, it literally their whole consciousness, they've been, you can't really fathom a world where the computer did not construct the world, you know, wasn't a part of it. Right. And I've never had that before. Um, <laughs> you know, you might get it from one or two or a few, but this was a group where they really just didn't know how you could do it without a computer. And that scares me a little bit. Um, but the computer is a tool, and I've accepted that, and the best I can tell my students is you need to be good at your tool. You need to use it well. Right. You need to know the programs, and um, it's a tool that technically should make your job easier. I find a lot of times if the students don't know the tool well, it actually makes a job harder. Um, but it does become a problem because I think the intuitive response gets kind of overlooked because they feel the computer is the only way to do something. And, um, you know, a a classic example of that is when a student tries to do something organic, like a signature, so that they use a computer to write the name or write the words. When I say, you know, you could have just written that on paper and scanned that in. (laughs) It's going to look a lot real, a lot more real than what you're trying to do on the computer. The computer will never, ever be, you know, reflect reality 100 Mm -hmm. percent. But that's always their first instinct is to write it on the computer versus actual pen to paper. And so that that bothers me, I think, a little bit. But um, I'm not a Luddite. I I know the computer, it's not going away. It's it's only going to be more a part of our lives. So I think the best I can ask for is they learn to use it well.
0: Um, What was was the name of the summer program you said you
1: taught? At CCA, I've been doing a summer program at a pre-college. Oh,
0: nice.
1: So I've been doing that, actually, even before I started at State. That was one of my first jobs, really, after grad school. So I've been there since 99. Um, And it's a traditional pre-college. You know, you get a lot of high schoolers, 15, 16, you know, 17-year-olds who some want to be graphic designers or some have never heard of it. But they figure summer school is a good way to to experience it. So I actually like teaching the high schoolers a lot. Nice,
0: nice. If you weren't doing design, cause I want to come back to what you were saying about graffiti and typography. But if you weren't doing design, what uh, what do you think you would be doing? What, what, what would you uh, be working it's
1: on? It's pretty easy. I'd probably be in ceramics, actually. I really? Would, yeah. It would either be something like the very making. Um, but I loved ceramics. Um, so that, I, and then now that I've been a little bit out of school and I've experienced other things, film is another medium that um, I like. Not necessarily as a director position, but I've had an opportunity as a, to do some editing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I worked on a couple of documentaries with, um, you know, some of the graphics, but working with the directors and offering input and working editing. So I could see that being. Let's just say, if I was not a graphic designer. Um, but when I was in school, for sure, ceramics would have been, uh, you know, I can honestly say I, I love design, but it was also the more practical route to go. You know, if you're leaving art school, mm-hmm. all things, you know, weighted ceramics, you know, graphic design, which is going to get me a job just. <laughs> so, um so the ceramics thing didn't go much further than once I left college. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if I would say money, I guess was not an option or just something to make me happy, I really liked ceramics ceramics.
0: I have yeah. a friend. she's a uh, she lives in Austin, Texas. She's a potter. Yeah. And uh, she I know she she does her wares and sort of sells them online, but she's always talked about how it's just a very therapeutic type of thing from the regular work that she does, it's sort of a digital analog kind of thing. Because she works um, not in design, she works in like project management, but she loves to do pottery and, and things. So it's sort of a different feeling.
1: Well, that's funny that you mentioned analog, because I've always said I'm, I'm either a fine artist trapped in a designer's body or a designer trapped in a fine artist's body. So I'm not <laughs> quite sure, because honestly, as much as I love graphic design, the art that actually you know, makes me excited. A lot of it is not graphic design. It, it is fine art. You know, painting, um, photography, furniture, ceramics. Um, yeah, it's not a lot of design. And, and if it's design, it's usually stuff that's, you know, old constructivist, you know, posters and you know maybe some stuff from Pushpin Studios in the 60s. But hmm. it's very, not a lot of, say, contemporary graphic design that you know, once I'm not doing it, I'm not necessarily checking it out. So the things that inspire me tend to be non-design-related arts. I got you.
0: Now, you said you like graffiti. Uh, Did that really sort of influence uh, your love of typography?
1: Um, You know, again, I wish I was smart enough, Maurice, to connect those two. (laughs) There was a word called typography when I was in it. Uh, Graffiti, even though I knew one of the main hallmarks of graffiti is having your own style, your own typographic style and so on. And I am prided myself on that and people who did it well. And I had no clue that there was a natural thing called typography. I just, you know, so, you know, in hindsight, I mean, I would say yes to your question for sure. Um, and, you know, I had a professor at, at CCA, that really kind of got me excited because, you know, as much as art school is about art, graffiti was not really welcomed, you know, in art school. And I had I hung out with friends who did graffiti and, you know, it was, it was always seen as a lesser art form. But I did have a professor and she was the first one that actually encouraged me to research graffiti, understand their history. And that led me to folks getting into even people like Basquiat, you know, from his early days tagging, you know, Samo back in the days. Um, And so that was good. It was great to have a professor who actually, not just that you like it, but there's more beyond just loving graffiti. There's a whole history behind it. Find out who these artists are learn about the aesthetic, you know, the things that drilled it. So, um, yeah, I, I still keep up with friends in in the graffiti world. I've actually had a few writers come to my type class and talk about graffiti as typography for sure.
0: Nice. So in your type class, are you teaching Is it sort of typography one-on-one or do you talk about more historic or practical applications or are students learning how to
1: create their own fonts and things like that? Um, It's not a type creation. You know, as much as I love type, uh, I don't design typefaces, the analogy that I use is I like driving the car, but I know, let someone else work on the engine. Uh So I'm the guy, once a car has been designed, put me behind the wheel, I'm going to take it out. Um, So the class I teach, it's really just the only type class that's offered in our department at State. So that's a difficult thing. Um, So it's essentially like almost four classes rolled up in one. So the first couple of weeks, maybe two or three weeks, they're learning some basic type things. But coming into my class, they've already had design one and kind of a pre-design class. So they they have some understanding. Um, But I actually, um, you know, when students come to the class, I ask them, how many of you are here to learn about type? And most of them, of course, raise their hands. And actually, I I teach them that I'm here to um, have them unlearn type because a lot of students come with very kind of rigid ideas of what typography is all about. And so I try and make them less afraid of type, push type as form, experiment with type. And that's actually the hardest thing to teach. So because, you know, you think about from, you know, first grade or kindergarten, when you're taught how to draw a letter, you know, A always equals A, B always equals B, and so on. And I'm essentially saying, throw that all out the window. I know you can read. I know you can write. We're going to use type now as an expressive tool. Um, So... They've done some pretty amazing work, You know, that's one of the fun things about teaching, when you actually have a um, kind of a thesis, um, a, a curriculum, a pedagogy, um, an outlook, and the students actually adopt that, and you can see it in their work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it took a while, I think, though, they get used to it. I think the first time in a crit where a student actually... Um, explained a design decision based on something I told them. That was a little nervous because <laughs> you know, as crits, and the students essentially, well, I did this because Professor Jones said, like, oh my God, but these <laughs> students are actually listening to what you're teaching them. So it took a while, but I've been teaching for, you know, long enough now. So I accept responsibility for either inspiring students or maybe completely turning them off from design. But, uh, <laughs> It, it took a while because you realize they do listen to you, which you know shouldn't be surprising. I'm pretty much teaching a lot of what I was taught as well, so I've had those teachers who who um, influenced me as well.
0: There are I I interviewed a, a letterist. I think this was probably it actually was the first podcast we did. I interviewed a letterist out of Pittsburgh, and there are three other sort of typographers slash letterists that I'm. I'm hoping to interview one of them is uh, Saki Mafundikoi. Oh,
1: yeah. Saki's uh, a good – you know, Saki's, a. I want to say, a friend. We're, like, great Facebook buddies, and we know a million people between us, but we've never met person to person. Really? <laughs> and, uh, but he's a great guy. I have his African Alphabets book, and uh, it's a great resource. As far as I know, the only one out there. I think it is. I need to get
0: that book. I'm trying to, trying to get him. Uh, Joshua Darden. I don't know if the name sounds familiar. He is a a typographer in Brooklyn, and he has a, I think his studio was called Darden Studio or something. I think that's what it's called. And then the third one is this guy named Kevin Karanja, who is in, I want to say Kenya or Tanzania, one of those two countries. But he made some news this year uh, for an African font that he created that was I, I can't remember if it was based off of Roman letter forms or if it was based off of maybe some traditional um, glyphs or something, but those three people I'm trying to reach out to and talk to them just individually about their particular. Because they all work in type, but it's, it's on different levels. Like, you know, like Saki has a book and has done a TED Talk, and Joshua is an entrepreneur that has his own uh, design studio and type foundry, and Kevin's, like, a design student. I created a font, so um, I, I've always had a, a really keen interest in in, uh, in typography, and one day I'll make my own fonts. Eventually, I'll I'll get there. Uh, who are some some current designers that you admire?
1: <laughs> See, this is the thing. I remember I went I went back. Um, ugh, current designers, you know, that is a tough question, Maurice. Um, again, I'm more of, a, of an art guy. Uh, you know, I, I have contemporaries that I think are doing some good stuff. You know, I live in, in, in the Bay Area, so you know it's, it's pretty much of a hotbed yeah. for for graphic design. Um, but you, you know, honestly, the last designer that actually made me pay attention, you know, you're talking about maybe in the '90s, people like maybe Carson, uh-huh. you know, um, people like a Neville Brody, and, and so on. Um, in terms of current guys or in the last few years. I don't, honestly, I don't really pay that much attention um, to to what you know a particular person is up to these days. Uh, so I would say that's a tough tough question. Okay. For, for me, um, at least when it comes to graphic design, um, I think in, in, in other arts there's there's a lot of um, different artists that I like getting turned on to. Um, you know, if something comes to me, I'll 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 bring it up. Okay.
0: Well, we can talk about you know just traditional artists. That you that you like now?
1: Well, you know the, the last artist that really um, is an artist called Mark Radford. Mm-hmm. Um, he's probably the last artist that just kind of blew me away, and uh, I wasn't too familiar with his work. Uh, he had a show out here at the um, in, in conjunction with the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts and our Museum of Modern Art, and yeah, it was it, it was a show that you know I could see over and over and over again, and so he was the last artist, and that was made just a couple of years ago. Um, there's people like, there's, you know, um, Mark Bermuthi Joseph, who's Mm -hmm. a dancer, choreographer, spoken word artist. People like that really impress me. Um, and those are some, those are some new kind of, I'm, I'm like recent fans of their work in the last few years. Okay. Um, there's people like Theaster Gates, who again is not a graphic designer, does a lot of, again, performance art, installations, um. So, yeah, the, the folks that really, again, I think, turn me on aren't necessarily graphic design. I think maybe because I do it, um, it's less exciting. <laughs> cause I essentially know how it, how it works.
0: Right. You've, you know how the sausage is made, basically.
1: Exactly. I'm really drawn to because I can't... I don't do performance art. I don't do any of that stuff. So, when I see people who do it well, at least to me, those guys really impress me. I'm, I'm always a big fan. So, but Mark Bradford was... Was one and I, know I have my classics. You know, I, I never get tired of people like Carrie James Marshall. You know, Lorna Simpson. I just saw the Carrie Mae Williams show at Stanford here, which mm-hmm. is excellent show. Um, there's folks like Michael Ray Charles, um, Glenn Ligon, so you know Julie Morettu. Um So you know, these are artists that I've, I've loved for at least ten, going on twenty plus years.
0: Okay.
1: And I still get excited when they do something.
0: What advice would you give to someone that's sort of just starting out? I know before you mentioned that you have to have the passion, and that's really for for students. Um, but is there is there anything else, any sort of advice that you would give? And and we'll we'll tailor this, let's say, towards a black audience. Is there any sort of advice that you would give as someone that's that's sort of been
1: a pioneer in this field for as long as you have? Um, yeah, you know, I guess confidence. And this might seem like anti-advice, but I think having a naive quality is gonna do you um, justice. I, and I, I've said this a lot, I have a naive quality. I think there's a part of me that doesn't know like I should not do that. And <laughs> I, I, I find a lot of students and a lot of people are very um, cautious. They they kind of build up this entire scenario before they even jump into when they get paralyzed. Like the world is so big, there's so many people looking for work. I shouldn't go here. That you know my skills aren't good enough. I had none of that, and maybe I should have. Um, but when I started out, I mean, I literally packed up my car, I drove across the country. I mean, I probably did everything you weren't supposed to do because I didn't maybe didn't question it. Mm-hmm. And I've always said that I, I have a, a naive quality about myself, and I think um, not. Overthinking is good advice. It works for me, and I think there's a level of confidence I think as well. Um, I've never gone into any situation because I was black or my design that you know I was less than. Mm-hmm. Uh, that never was an, an issue. Uh, even in school, when when professors who didn't quite understand you know my take on certain things, I, to me it was more their problem and less mine. Um, so I, I think confidence is going to be key, and just in general, I mean, I tell my students even know if you're in a creative profession, whether it's design, music, acting, you know, for everyone who loves what you do, someone's going to hate it. So
2: mm-hmm. you can't
1: go in there thinking, you know, the first rejection, the first person who doesn't like my my stuff, I'm going to give up. Um, that to me is kind of silly. The fact that you are a creative person, you've already put yourself out there for critique, and as long as you feel good about your work. Um, for every time I've ever had a bad critique, I, I'd probably even say, you know, worse things about it. if I never, I, I knew I, I didn't step up. But if I feel good about it, you know, that's always been the benchmark. So, you know, confidence I think is is going to be key. Um, and then there's a naive quality I think. Just don't don't overthink it. And you know that it worked for me. That's probably the best advice like I could give. Um, and of course, you know, there's certain just just standards, you know. No, do your homework uh, you know don't spell names wrong you know be on time mm-hmm. um, you know those those are some of the classic things which I think work for everybody um, but confidence and um, naivete <laughs> naivete but <laughs> a, it, I'm, I'm trying to define it in a proper way I do think though people um, you know make things bigger than they are or they overthink it
2: mm-hmm.
1: sometimes I think it's a, there's a nice quality sometimes of just going in and not knowing I I mean, I find that I've I've seen that story played out similarly there's a lot of people who are entrepreneurs who become somebody and I've heard them say you know well no one told me I wasn't supposed to do it that way Mm -hmm. you know because people feel these are the proper channels and sometimes if you don't know what those channels are you just kind of go by instinct and sometimes that works
0: I got you so just to you know wrap the interview up where can our readers find you online
1: so online, um, I have a studio website, which is Plantain Studio, dot ocom And probably Facebook, though, would be, would be better. So there's also um, Plantain Studio on Facebook. And I actually update that site a lot more than, than the website. Um, I also have a group, a little collective, which is called the NEA, the Negro Emancipation Association. And that's <laughs> also on Facebook. Um, okay. Bruce Woods is a, is a member of that. And that's a loose collective of other designers, architects of color and kind of Bay Area based. So the NEA um, is also on, on Facebook.
0: Awesome, awesome. And I also see that you have uh... Join Black Designers United.
1: I did. I think I came <laughs> that through um, maybe looking on your page. So what?
0: They, get out of here, really. Yeah.
1: I, I'm, a, I'm connected with some other black uh, Facebook groups, but I wasn't familiar with that one.
0: Yeah, BDU is uh,
1: it's a pretty it's a pretty good group.
0: I'm a part of some other design groups on on Facebook as well, and I, I like that they really try to to keep things fairly active and on topic. Because I feel like in those kind of groups, especially with design groups, everything can be highly subjective. So things can get derailed pretty easily. So, so yeah, that's good. Well, Steve Jones, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your day for this interview. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I think our audience uh, will enjoy it, too. Thank you. Well,
1: oh, thank you, Maurice. I enjoyed it. All right. All right. Keep
0: up the good work.
1: Thanks, man. You, too. Okay. Thank you.
0: All right. that's it for this week big thanks to steve jones and thanks to you for listening revision path is a 318 media project if you like what we're doing with these podcasts you can help sponsor the show contact information will be included in the show notes thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time